0: Welcome to Objections to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, March 25th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, March 28th. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-host, Jasmine Smith. Our third partner in crime, Emily Scott, is taking a break this week, but she definitely contributed to this episode, so we'd like to extend our thanks to her for that. How are you doing today, Jasmine?
1: Um, I'm doing okay I was happy the weather was pretty nice like it yeah. wasn't uh, it wasn't as sunny as I thought it would be but it was a nice temperature so I got outside
0: nice yeah spring is definitely in the air so I'm super grateful for that awesome so this week we are talking about parliamentary changes in the new in New Zealand concerning families who have experienced miscarriage loan forgiveness for defrauded students Upper West Side residents stalking a homeless activist, and unfortunately, the Colorado shooting. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our episode with our local news story. Jasmine, you're up.
1: Okay, so this is a, it's a story that's been going on for a while. Um, it's been, I think it's been almost a year now that this um This conflict has been going on. So the article that I'm reading from is from The Gothamist, and it was written by Jake Offenharts. The title is Upper West Side Shelter Opponents Accused of Stalking Homeless Activists As Lucerne Battle Drags On. So the activist's name is Ramon Buford, and he had just stepped out of the shower on a recent Friday morning when two men dressed as plumbers arrived at his door They claimed to be investigating a leak coming out of his bathroom, and Buford, who had just moved into a studio apartment from a homeless shelter weeks earlier, let them in without a second thought. Days later, Buford got a call from his lawyer. The men he learned were not plumbers, but former NYPD detectives who were now working as private investigators to confirm his address. They were hired by Randy Mastro, an attorney for an Upper West Side group that has spent the last seven months trying to evict homeless men from an emergency shelter in the neighborhood's Lucerna Hotel. A March 12th legal filing submitted by Mastro includes a photo of Buford standing shirtless inside his own apartment, taken by one of the private eyes without his knowledge. Buford sees their intrusion as part of a pattern of retaliation he's faced for his homeless activism. The 51-year-old transitioned from the Lucerne to a subsidized Harlem apartment in February, so like like almost two months ago now. Before that, he'd bounced between the streets and shelters for most of his life. He says, I was just getting to know what it's like to have a good night's sleep, Buford told the Gothamist. To now become a target of them is horrifying. I'm right back on guard. Every little sound, I'm jumping up. The incident marks the latest chapter in a fierce battle over the fate of the Lucerne, where more than 100 men are still living, despite ongoing attempts from the city to have them removed. Following outcry and threats of violence from some Upper West Side residents, Mayor Bill de Blasio agreed late last year to recloat relocate the men to a Radisson Hotel downtown. But in January, a state appeals court overruled that decision, allowing the men to remain at the Lucerne while it takes up the case. Both Mastro and the de Blasio administration have pushed the court to lift the stay, most recently citing the fact that Buford and the two other named petitioners, Larry Thomas and Travis Trammell, have since moved out of the Lucerne and into permanent housing. There are now 123 men living at the shelter, down from a high of 238 when it opened this summer, according to the city. In his own affidavit, Buford questioned the city's sudden interest in moving Lucerne residents to permanent housing, noting that the three petitioners in the case were among the first to be transitioned. He says, I would like to think that the city is making these efforts in order to improve our lives. But part of me believes the city is doing this in order to achieve politically that which it could not achieve in court. Isaac McGinn, who's a spokesperson for the Department of Homeless Services, maintained that the transfer of residents to homes had nothing to do with the ongoing case. He describes Mastro's use of the disguised investigators as a quote, absolute egregious invasion of this individual's privacy. Mastro, meanwhile, pointed Gothamist to a motion filed on Monday in which he argues that he had no choice but to hire the investigators because Buford's attorney declined to acknowledge his client had moved out of the Lucerne. The attorney named Michael Hiller denies this, Uh, and then this is Mastro speaking, that Mr. Buford now makes the bald and baseless claim that he fears for his physical safety Attributing his fear in part to our clients, all law-abiding, peaceful, and longtime Upper West Side residents is nothing short of ludicrous, the filing states, especially since Mr. Buford so obviously craves the limelight, dubbing himself the homeless hero, making regular media and other public appearances, and tweeting to his many followers daily." The filings were presented by Mastro on, beside, on behalf of the Westside Community Organization, a nonprofit created by residents opposed to the new homeless shelters in the neighborhood. The group raised $180,000 this past summer. State Assembly person, Linda Rosenthal, who represents the neighborhood, questioned whether the group's members knew Their money could be used to pay for the stalking of someone who no longer lives in the neighborhood. It's beyond the pale, she said. They took advantage of his experience as a homeless person. Despite not living in the shelter anymore, Buford said he was deeply invested in the decision of the state appeals court, which is expected to be issued in the coming months. He has continued to attend substance abuse counseling offered by the Lucerne and has a job through a grant-funded program linked to the shelter. Beyond that, Buford said, he was fighting for the dignity of shelter residents across the city. The fact that we've prolonged this legal process angers the mayor and angers Randy Mastro, Buford added. They look at me like I'm a little old homeless guy who won't go away.
0: Wow. That story has so many complexities. So can you break it down just a little bit, like, um, about the homeless activist himself? Like, why are, why are, I'm, I'm a little confused at why the residents are making such a big stink about what he's doing.
1: Well, there was at at the beginning, like closer to the beginning of the pandemic, this Lucerne is like a hotel. It doesn't look like it's that great of a hotel even, but it it exists on the Upper West Side. And it's a place that had been repurposed to give people that are homeless a place to stay. Like the city put them there. And there's been this long ongoing thing where these residents in that neighborhood even to the point of saying that they like want physical harm to happen to some of the homeless people. Like they're very angry that it exists and they feel like, you know, these people shouldn't be in this area. Like, and it's gotten really ugly. So this person, um, Buford, uh, Ramon Buford, he was very vocal and like, we're not going to leave. Like we're not going to be bullied out of this area you know, especially it's a pandemic. So not having a place to live is huge as See, far putting you at risk. And, and that, that just
0: shows you how people think they're different than homeless people. Like as if homeless people are not people who just were in a bad situation or fell, you know, fell on their luck. I know that's not everybody's story, but that just shows you right there that people really separate themselves as, you know, as, as if they don't understand their circumstances.
1: Yeah, it's really been very heartless and cruel, you know, so basically, he's just someone that didn't want to take it lying down, and he's vocal, and they wish that he weren't. So even though, you know, in the story, they're saying that it seems as though because him and some of the other people that stood up for all of the residents in the shelter, um, like they, their names are known. Like it, he feels like there was this effort to hurry up and get them out of the shelter. So I guess it's like, well, you now have a place to stay. So what's your, like, you're gonna, you know, stop fighting and he's not backing down. Like he still, he feels like it's a larger issue. And just the fact that they would go to these lengths to hire ex-cops to lie and get into someone's home is just so beyond like disgusting and dehumanizing. It's, it's gross.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, come on, everybody is going through the most right now. And you know, what's really killing me right now is people are thinking that the pandemic is over, you know, because the vaccine is widely distributed and people are getting it feeling like they can overcome anything. But the reality is like, we are going to be dealing with the repercussions of this time for years to come. It's just not going to be over when COVID is not running rampant. Like there are repercussions that from this breakdown that all countries across the entire world will be dealing with for a while, you know, so I applaud any activists standing up for what they believe in during this moment, but in specific, this guy, because if the problem is not fixed, you know, homelessness is a systemic problem. You know, if pe- I feel like people really think about it as a individual situation and it could be that for some people. I'm not I'm not saying that that's not true. But the, the bigger thing is when people become homeless, in my perspective, it's a series of events, a series of unfortunate bullshit that happened to them. Whether it's, you know, they lost their job, they lost their finances, they got caught up in some scheme, they have an addiction problem, or something happened to their family and they just couldn't take care of it. All of those things are systemic. All of those things stem from not having variations of support that are necessary for human beings. And I just hate that people separate themselves from homeless people as if they did something wrong. I'm not saying that every person that's homeless made all the right choices. What I'm saying is not every person that was homeless was always homeless. Like people can arrive there at any moment, especially during this time when jobs are few And people are living paycheck to paycheck and dependent on stimulus. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, it can happen to any of us at any time.
1: Yeah, like what it makes me think of is one of the first stories that we did when I joined the show, I think I was, I did it. It was about um, a proposed, I think it was like a halfway house or something, or like a, no, it was a men's shelter that was going to be put in a neighborhood in Queens. Yeah, I remember that story. All the requirements were like the people that stayed there had to be working. They had to be doing this, and people came out and in force, and they were saying like horrible, violent things about wanting the place to be burned down. And I think like people call it NIMBYism, like not in my backyard. It's not this harmless, benign, like, oh, it's understandable. Like, the root of it is violence because, bas- like, what are you saying? Like, what do you think should happen to people who have no place to go? And if you really dig into it, ultimately, the people are pushing for these types of people to basically be on the brink of death or like dead somewhere you know, because if everyone is like, I don't want it, yeah, sure, in theory, these people should have a place to live as long as it's not near me, like, eventually, then what does that lead to, you know, and it's whether, whatever a person's decisions have been in life, even if their decisions I don't like, having a place to live is a human right like having access to just the basics to keep you going yes I might hate you like I still think you should have a place to live absolutely so you know these antics and the fact that it's been going on for so long it's really it's it's gross you know and I'm sure a lot of these residents they've never really had something happen to them but you don't know what your life could be like tomorrow. It's a exactly. lot of people, especially with this virus, like they were living pretty good. And then all like Emily talks all the time about, oh, this person couldn't pay their rent for like a year at this point, you know? And if you're not lucky enough to be in the right kind of situation, you could find yourself in need of being in a shelter or something. But, you know, like you're saying, people are so divorced from that and they dehumanize people who are not who don't have a place to live to the point where it's like they're acting like these people are vermin or something like that's so the fact that you would go to these lengths it's so gross like for what like what are you even as if you don't have something about yeah as if you don't have something better to do really Yeah. And it's like, look, not to say like, of course, there are issues where there are people who might be house unhoused and it's somewhat linked to like a behavioral issue or like there's things that they do that might be surprising to people or unsight or unseemly. But that's not like going to kill you, you know, and it's like how much of that stuff is also happening with your other Upper West Side neighbors, but because they look a certain way, you don't think twice you know it's a lot of people on all kinds of drugs or doing all types of illicit whatever but because you know they're a broker or whatever the hell it's not a problem but if it's someone that fits a different like look then it's oh oh my god like they have they have to be moved downtown like it's it's ridiculous
0: It is and we're living in a time like no Other so people need to just get off that Fucking high horse and just be human and Understand that all of us are Trying our best and some of us have Better situations than others so At this point there's no reason for us to be judging One another we should really be helping one another And not doing things to make The situation worse because that's really what They're doing they're not helping This situation at all they're really Just adding to the bullshit That have people in bad Situations as it is so,
1: yeah. So just, I'm happy at least that, um, that Ramon was put into permanent housing. Like he does have a place to live. You know, I'm sorry that this incident happened and it disturbed his newfound peace. You know, I would be shook up if I found out someone lied to get into my place, but, um, yeah, I'm happy that they're still fighting the good fight and that at at least initially, the moves to try to push the homeless people out of the neighborhood have been stopped. So I hope they continue to get legal victories in this situation, despite what their neighbors are doing.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Definitely good to just bring us back to reality. Like just be more kind people. We still going through it. So we're going to go ahead and uh, take our first musical break. The first track today is a jazz record I love the name. It's called Portobello Superhero, and it's by Mayel Menzanza and Benjamin Morals. We'll be right back. <gasps> Our next segment, we're going to jump around this week, and this will be the World News segment. So information from this story uh, comes from an art- article on theguardian.com by Tess McClure. The article is titled, New Zealand Brings in Bereavement Leave for Miscarriages and Stillbirths, and followed up by an article from the New York Times um, by Natasha Frost, and the title of that article is, New Zealand Approves Paid Leave After Miscarriage. New Zealand's parliament has voted unanimously to give mothers and their partners three days of bereavement after leave following a miscarriage or a stillbirth. The legislation applies to parents, their partners, and parents planning to have a child through adoption or surrogacy. Labor MP Jenny Anderson, who presented the bill, said it would allow parents to come to terms with their loss without being forced to use up their sick leave entitlements. Employers in New Zealand, as in some other countries, had already been required to provide paid leave in the event of a stillbirth when a fetus is lost after 20 weeks or more. The new legislation will expand that leave to anyone who loses a pregnancy at any point, removing any ambiguity. The measure is expected to become a law in coming weeks. The new law, which had been in development for several years, comes amid a broader global reckoning over women at work. Women have long struggled to balance the requirements of their employers with issues like pregnancy, sometimes leading them to misadvancement and other opportunities. A miscarriage or stillbirth remains a fraught and painful topic. One that is difficult to talk about publicly or seek support for, which health advocates say is a huge issue for women all over the world. In Australia, People who miscarry are entitled to unpaid leave if they lose the fetus after 12 weeks, while in Britain, would-be parents who experience a stillbirth after 24 weeks are eligible for paid leave. The United States currently does not require employees to provide leave for anyone who suffers a miscarriage at all. Anyway, New Zealand is not the first country in the world to progress legislation on miscarriage leave. Indian law stipulates women who Women are entitled to six weeks leave if they miscarry a baby, but because the vast majority of employees engage in informal work, few are able to access it. Some other countries have provisions for paid leave if a woman gives birth to a stillborn. In the Canadian province of Ontario, if a woman loses a baby after 17 weeks or less before her due date, she's entitled to 17 weeks of unpaid pregnancy leave. Look, look, just look at that number. Like, it's so crazy. This law is for three days, the one I'm talking about in the story. This is 17 weeks, um, which is probably the best situation for any woman in the world right now. Um, up to 20% of all known pregnancies in the United States in a miscarriage, according to the Mayo Clinic. In New Zealand, whose population is 5 million, the Ministry of Health estimates that one in two pregnancies in 10 will end a miscarriage. The new law, however, does not apply to abortions. New Zealand decriminalized abortion last year, ending the country's status as one of the few wealthy nations to limit the grounds for ending pregnancy in the first half. Jenny Anderson, the Labor member of Parliament who drafted the bill, had this to say, quote, I felt that if... I felt that it would give women the confidence to be able to request the leave if it was required, as opposed to just being stoic and getting on with life when they knew that they needed time physically and psychologically to get over this grief. Um, So my sentiments on the story is, wow. Okay. Um, congrats to New Zealand for making some advancement in this. I do feel that the three day pay bereavement is kind of, you know, not nearly what is necessary for women who go through this. But I feel like it's a step in the right direction, you know, to acknowledge that this is is a real thing that women go through all the time. It's actually as common as giving birth. It's not a taboo. It's not something that we can't talk about. But the shame and regret and just overall encompassing emotional turmoil that this takes families through is something that we need to consider as a culture. Like this is not easy. You know, I can't even imagine the amount of grief and just everything that a family would go through when dealing with this. And and the fact that there are no laws to protect people who can really go back to work or anything they were doing before after dealing with such a traumatic event.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's such, it can be such a private thing, you know, like depending on the situation, like, Um, you know, not everyone necessarily plans to get pregnant, but a lot of people do. And or even if it's unplanned, a lot of times like there's a lot of excitement and anticipation and planning. And it's, you know, like you mentioned, it's extremely common, like pregnancy loss happens all the time, but there really isn't in the mainstream culture, like a sensitivity around discussing it or being aware of it you know, or like how people get very, they might not even tell someone because it's so common, like it's common to wait until you've been pregnant for a certain amount of time before you even tell people, because it is such a high probability possibility that you might not make it to term. But, you know, it's just, there's so many things that have been normalized for so long in the name of exactly. work. that. Shouldn't, should never have been normal. I mean, one of the big ones with the pandemic right now is going into work even though you're sick because you're worried about getting in trouble or like there would be such a high burden of you proving that you're sick or else you get in trouble for taking out, taking off. And then what's the result of that? You have people coming in and then spreading disease. And then, you know, if you look at this, you know, it's been so normalized that If you do deal with pregnancy loss, unless you, you know, take out of some other bank of PTO that you have, if you even have that, it's been normalized for you to have this expectation that you just come in like everything's cool. And what does that do to your mental health and your emotional health? You know, you probably feel like you can't talk to other people. You know, people might be asking you questions still if you did tell them that you were pregnant you know, it's, there's just so many callous and inhumane things that are a part of keeping capitalism going. And this is one of the most glaring ones.
0: Absolutely. I think what sticks out most to me about this story is the fact that this um, opportunity is afforded to not only the mothers um, who are dealing with this, but it also applies to the partners, as well as parents who are planning child, uh, to have a child through adoption or surrogacy. Um, that's really forward thinking, you know, because parenting today is not caught up in the traditional sense. Um, this law to me appeals to everyone who's even considered being a parent, um, which makes it more just realistic, more human, and actually acknowledge the fact that people go through shit, man. People go through shit, things that you will never forget. These are traumatic experiences. And then, you know, the, to the families that continue to try to have children after that, how they handle this will be a direct reflection on what happens next to them in their, you know, um, parent planning, how they handle the next step in their life, whether it's their job, their relationship. Because obviously this is, takes a huge toll on just the, the intimacy between people who are trying to raise children. Um, this event can really shape what's next in life. So I just felt it was important to highlight the story because I think that the fact that the U.S. does not have any protections for people who go through this um, traumatic event. Um, yeah, it's unnerving. And I really hope that in the next couple of years we see some movement on that. I think that all of the celebrities who have been speaking out about their experience with this has definitely helped t- change the tide around this conversation.
1: I mean, this this country is trash, man, because you know what what you were saying, it made me think like if you're someone who's pregnant and you're excited about it and you lose your pregnancy and you struggle, you know, to your job There's no legal protection for you to be able to take time to grieve it. If you're pregnant and you did not want to be, and you also happen to miscarry, there are laws to punish you though and to treat you like you did something wrong, you know, and it's, you know, like there's just so much that's, that's either it's legal to basically punish people for something that's just an unfortunate, normal part of life. But then there's no legal protections to actually support someone who's in the exact same situation. You know, it's just like culturally, societally, something is wrong, you know, and just like that base level wanting to control people, lack of compassion, the misogyny, you know, making it so difficult for people. You know, it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, like if you're somebody that can get pregnant. You know, and then they you see these articles panicking about the birth rates being as low as they are. And it's like, well, would you want to have a kid in this climate? You know, like it states right now where you could, you know, let's say you are happy, you're excited and you're trying. Something could go wrong. And if you fall afoul of the wrong person, you're on trial like you, quote unquote, killed someone, you know, just because you had a you miscarried. You know, it's like a, it's a, it's wonderful news for the people of New Zealand. And I hope that we see a changing tide here, but the way these state laws are going, I don't know. Well,
0: I personally will continue to make some noise about this. Let's take another musical break. Um, The next track is one that I really enjoyed. I actually just found this track and it was pretty, pretty fun. It is called Freedom and it's by an artist called John Baptiste. We'll be right back. back to objection to the rule your sunday afternoon news hour on radio free brooklyn and now we will have jasmine with our national news story
1: okay so this is another um unfortunately another sad national story about a mass shooting um emily took a break this week but she provided most of the information for this summary of what happened in colorado So these bullet points come from a New York Times article titled, Colorado Grocery Store Shooting Leaves 10 Dead, and it was written on March the 23rd. Um, On Tuesday, March 22nd, 10 people were killed at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, when a gunman opened fire. The shooter has since been identified as Ahmad Al-Aliwi Alyssa. Who was, quote, armed with both a military style semi automatic rifle and a, pis- a pistol when he walked into the King Super's store? This is the second mass shooting in the U.S. in under a week. Um, last week's episode, we discussed the shooting that happened in Atlanta. Um, Boulder Police Chief Maris Herold said at a news conference that police officers had run into the King Super's grocery store within minutes of the shooting and had shot at the suspect. There were no other officers injured during the response. And she also said Mr. Alyssa was taken to a hospital for treatment of a leg injury. Um, One of the witnesses says, I thought I was going to die. Uh, Their name is Alex Arellano, 35. Uh, Alex was working in the meat department at King Supers in the South Boulder area when he heard a series of gunshots then saw people running toward an exit near his department. The victims were Officer Eric Talley, who had responded to a barrage of 911 calls about the shooting, Denny Stong, age 20, a grocery store employee who hunted but was also a passionate supporter of certain gun restrictions, Nevin Stanisik, age 23, who was the son of Serbian refugees who had fled Bosnia during the 1990s and who had been fixing coffee machines at the Starbucks inside the supermarket and was in the parking lot just leaving when he was gunned down. Ricky Olds, age 25, a manager at the store. Trelona Barkawiak, age 49, who managed another local store and was recently engaged. Suzanne Fountain, age 59, a prolific gardener who had recently started a new career advising older people on how to apply to Medicare. Terry Leaker, age 51, a King Super's employee for about 30 years. Kevin Mahoney, age 61, a soon-to-be grandfather. Lynn Murray, age 62, a retired photo director for several New York City magazines and Jody Waters, age 65, who owned clothing stores in Boulder and Denver for more than 23 years. She was a mother and a grandmother, and her family said she had a unique ability to connect with people. Um, There was a March 23rd Newsweek article titled, Colorado NRA Group Praised Boulder Gun Control Defeat Week Before Mass Shooting by Darag Roche, And there's this group called the Colorado State Shooting Association or the CSSA publicly celebrated a court ruling that struck down a gun control ordinance passed by Boulder City Council one week before a mass shooting in the city. The group is the official state association of the NRA. Also from that Newsweek article on March 17th, CSSA's Twitter account praised a legal win over the city of Boulder, sharing a link to the NRA Institute of Legal Action that explained a recent court ruling. He, meaning the judge, ruled that the city of Boulder's ban on possessing and transferring commonly possessed assault we- weapons and 10-round magazines was preempted by state law and struck them down. Uh, The CSA also issued a statement on Twitter early on Tuesday, emphasizing the need to grieve for the deceased and saying now was not the time to discuss firearms reform. Um, And then Emily noted, this is again back to the New York Times article. Since the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut killed 21st grade students and six adults, 13 states, all controlled by Democrats, have enacted or expanded background checks for new gun purchases. Meanwhile, 14 states, all controlled by Republicans, have passed laws allowing their citizens to carry guns with no permit process at all. Um, And before we move on, uh, there was another article from the Denver Post and the title was, Boulder shooting suspect Ahmad Al Aliwi Alissa was short-tempered violent, former teammates say. Um, and this was written by Shelley Bradbury, Conrad Swanson, John Mayer, and Noel Phillips. So this, um, the shooter was a 21-year-old Arvada man. He was arrested an hour after the shooting started. He had attended Arvada West High School from 2015 until 2018 and was on the wrestling team there during his junior and senior year one of his teammates named Dayton Marvel said that he was kind of scary to be around. And Alyssa had once had an outburst and threatened to kill people during an intra-team match. Um, there was an instance during his senior year during the wrestle-offs when they try to see who was going to make varsity where he actually lost the match and quit the team, and yelled out in the wrestling room that he was, like, going to kill everybody, and that's, again, according to his former teammate, Dayton Marvel. Um, It's really, it's really a shame that, you know, these these things always seem to have, like, a precursor. Um, Further in the Denver Post article, other teammates and classmates are saying this person, Alyssa, was always talking about, Um, thinking people were after him, that people were out to get him and out to make fun of him because he was a Muslim. Um, And towards the end of the article, um, there was a family member who saw Alyssa playing with a gun that looked like a machine gun the night before, two days before the shooting, and that he had been talking about having a bullet stuck in the gun and was playing with it other people in the house got upset that he had the gun and took it from him. Um, that's what the relative told um, told police, but she believes that at some later point the gun was given back to him. Um, and he had purchased this gun six days before the attack. And uh, yeah, it's just, it never surprises me now. Like when you see these stories happen and then somewhere in the person's background it's like some kind of history of violence like he had already been in trouble for beating people up in high school like attacking people out of nowhere making these threats that he was going to kill people because he lost a match like it's really it's like I'll never advocate for like preemptively like putting someone away like I don't think that's a solution but not intervening when people are showing these signs early on at some point like they are gonna make good on a threat and do something
0: yeah um wow you just hit so many so many targets for me first of all again as a young person okay I feel like every time we talk about this it's a young person and that's something to highlight because young people are taught behavior from what they experience and every time we have a story about a mass shooting the you know and the shooter is a person that's under the age of 30 I know that they've witnessed what a mass shooting is in the media in the news whatever they've seen how this shit work so they already know what to expect and sad to say it's easy to find how to do it it's not hard to figure it out But the simple regulations that are necessary for us to have more gun control, that shit is the thing that boggles my mind every time we have this conversation. Like, why is this not common sense? Why is this a question? Why are we thinking about this? Why is this something that people are opposing? Let's go to the root. When people feel the need to bear arms it's because they feel they have no protection that they are afraid of what can happen to them in the street whether it's from the system, the government, their neighbors, their wife, their husband, whoever it is, right? But I feel like we're getting to a point now where it could literally be the person sitting next to you because they're tired with life. And we are living in a time where everybody's fucked fucking tired with life. I'm done. Like we're all done. But I'm not going to come out here and fucking kill a bunch of people because of it. And I'm not saying that everybody's on the same shit. But it's so logical. That people get to these levels. Of no return. Like the reality is. Being black in America. Is dangerous. Being woman in America. Is subject to danger. Right? So if, if we know this. If this is like the baseline. To life here. Why is this a fucking question? This is a young person who has experienced gun violence and seen what it can do. In his lifetime, he has witnessed what this what happens here. And the people around him who know him, know his tendency, his behaviors. So this is a clear indication that if that gun was not available to this person, possibly we wouldn't be talking about this story.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that there would always be like even if it weren't for guns like there would still be violence but the fact that these types of weapons are so easily accessible something that may have been like a physical fight like this is someone who would lose his temper and then like beat someone up now he's in a position because it's so easy to get these automatic weapons Instead of beating one person up, maybe. And, like, even if he would have beat one person up and beat them up badly enough where they die, that's not the same as then you have access to a machine that can mow down dozens of people. You it's know a know fucking no brainer, yo. It's really, but I do think it's been said before that after Sandy Hook happened, you know, all of these. That I remember, what, like hearing the news of that, and it just really, it really sealed it for me that if if these types of victims are not enough to move a lot of the powers that be to restrict access to these weapons, like there's no type of victim that's ever going to make them think it's time to have restrictions, and I think it's because ultimately they're willing to pay the price of all of these horrific, like, random mass shooting instances. They think it's worth all those people dying unnecessarily so that certain types of people, like, a lot of their constituents can feed off of this, like, race war ramble, like, I'm gonna shoot down all the undesirable, like, fantasies. Like, the gun lobby is so strong in this country that at this point like they don't even care you can't even say it's like they don't care because most of the people are black they don't care what color the people are who are dying as long as they continue to have their guns or their rights to have the gun it really doesn't matter and it's just it's it's almost like this death cult mentality
0: at this point in time there's no reason for any person to have access to this type of machinery like what, what are we saying? Uh, just a, just a simple fact of giving people access to these weapons just paints a stance of what weaponry means. and it's not the right thing. It's fucking not the right way to look at this. like I, I can't front I'm from Ohio. I believe in the right to bear arms, but not fucking machine guns. like come on son, like really, what are we trying to do out here? If you need to protect your family, your assets, whatever, if you black, yeah, I said that, then you need a gun sometimes like dead ass, but you don't need heavy gun machinery. I, I, I don't know. I'm on both sides of the argument because of that, because I'm a black female in America, but the re and I was raised in a state where you can conceal and carry, but luckily, and, and, you know, to God's grace, I've never been in one of these incidents, but the reality is like, I'm sorry. Having regulations around fucking heavy machinery is—it's not—it's not something we have to think about. It's quite logical why we should not.
1: Yeah, like there's a, there's a, another agenda behind like why there isn't just even like common sense things. Um, I'm personally not. I can understand people who might be in like an isolated rural area or people who hunt. But from what I've seen with the statistics, like even people that have smaller guns for protection, it's like you're more likely to end up hurting yourself or someone by accident than actually being able to use it effectively in self-defense. So to me, it's like you hear a lot of like, oh, if they're... after the Charleston shooting happened, there were the like the NRA was saying, like, if there had been good people with guns, there was that school shooting recently where the good people with guns were literally hiding in a parking lot and allowed the mass shooter to continue shooting at teenagers so i personally like i am not a fan of guns and especially like if you're going to have them if they're going to be allowed then at the bare minimum these military grade things have got to go it's one thing you have a pistol or what or something like that versus right. these things that are like and you can kill like hundreds of people exactly. in seconds. Like they shouldn't exist, in my opinion, period. They shouldn't be happening during wartime because it's, you know, I think that that's wrong. But the idea that, you know, just regular, you can just walk on in, you know, it's easier to do that. Then you can get, you know, medicine that you might need to save your life but you can go in a store and get one of these things. And then days later, you're blowing innocent people away for nothing.
0: Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Something has to happen. All right. So we're going to go ahead and jump into our good news story. Thank you so much, Emily, for giving us this one. This story um, is from a website, uh, axius.com It comes via a March 19th Axios story on Oriana Gonzalez and Maria Arieles titled defrauded store students to receive loan forgiveness on March 18th. The education department announced that federal school loans would be eliminated for students who were quote defrauded by for profit colleges End quote, according to a press release on the U S department of education website. These are the main points of the story. First one is today, the U S department of education announced it will streamline debt relief determinations for borrowers with claims approved to date that their institutions engage in certain misconduct. The department anticipates this change will ultimately help approximately 72,000 borrowers receive 1 billion in loan cancellation. That's fucking huge. Beginning today, the department will ensure that borrowers with approved borrowing defense claims to date will have a streamlined path to receiving full loan discharges. This includes borrowers with previously approved claims that receive less than full discharge. Full relief under the regulation will include hundred percent discharge for borrowers related federal student loans, reimbursement of any amounts paid on the loans where appropriate under the regulations. Request to credit bureaus to remove any related negative credit reporting and reinstatement of federal student aid eligibility, if applicable. This is the department's first step in addressing borrowed defense claims, as well as the underlying regulations. The department will be pursuing additional actions, including re-regulation, in the future. The department will begin applying this new approach today. And affected borrows will receive notices from the department over the next several weeks with discharges following after that. Updated information for borrows will be posted at studentaid.com slash borrow defense. And then finally, the current Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, is quoted in the press release as saying, quote, Borrowers deserve a simplified and fair path to relief when they have been harmed by their institution's misconduct. A close review of these claims and the associated evidence show these borrowers have been harmed and we will grant them a fresh start from the debt. End quote. So to me, this is awesome because at least somebody's fucking paying attention to this thing. I feel like student loan forgiveness is floating with this administration. It's kind of there. It's kind of not, but this is one step towards like people understanding the predatory, um, nature, I think of student loans. And Right. right. There is a predatory nature to it that is not just for profit, any fucking college, If you want to say that there's that nature that's attached to it, that people feel, oh, let me do this now because I'm in a bad situation. I want to be good. I want to go to school. And then you owe for the rest of your life. So this is good news. Like somebody's fucking paying attention to something's being done. All of us is over here like, you know, like, like, all right, Biden, you better do your thing on this. We are waiting for some 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 movement, but this is a sign that somebody's actually paying attention to the predatory nature of this process.
1: And I, I mean, I, def- I, def- I definitely think that it's good for the people that are going to be benefited by it. It's definitely still not enough, though. Um, Absolutely. It's only a drop in the bucket of what the total amount of student loan debt is. And I do worry sometimes that It seems like another form of what they call like means testing it's like because they're trying to appease people that are resentful of the idea of someone that they think doesn't deserve getting help they restrict it so much where you have to be like you have zero dollars and then maybe we'll help you with the or like you have to be the victim of such an extreme scam for you to get relief when you know, of course, it's great for those people to be helped, but there's so many more people that, you know, maybe they weren't exactly defrauded, but they're essentially in the same situation or a very similar one. So I hope that this con- this trend continues because it's, it's good, but it's definitely not good enough and he could do a lot more. So chop, chop, <laughs> chop, chop,
0: that's real. And we got more to do, so. Um, I'm grateful these students are getting some sort of um, grievance because of their situation. But expand that shit to all of us that's dealing with it, including myself. All right. So that's it, guys, for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Listen up for a more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track for the day is really cool. It's kind of got like a house vibe. I just found this track and I really loved it. Um, It's from a individual that is representing himself sort of in a different way. The track is called Rise and his name is Lost Frequencies. We'll see you next week. Bye.
1: Bye. Have a good week.
2: All of the dirt, out of the shade now, nothing but clothes does, I'm not gonna break-
1: If you live in New York City and run for either fun or exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city while you're getting in your workout. City Running Tours is now offering neighborhood running tours designed with locals in mind. New York City takes pride in the diversity and character of its neighborhoods, and these unique running tours offer an opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood and get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose from tours of 23 neighborhoods, including the East Village, the Upper West Side, Bushwick, Long Island City, and Roosevelt Island. For more information about the running tours and to see the list of neighborhoods and full tour schedule, check out their website at www.cityrunningtours.com slash New York City and check out a live tour every Saturday at 10 a.m. on instagram.com forward slash city running tours.